This episode is brought to you by Michael's Business English, the online language school for busy English language learning professionals. Learn more at michaelsbusinessenglish.com. You are listening to the International Careers Show, a podcast dedicated to supporting international students, professionals, and business owners. We'll be diving into case studies of people just like you, as well as talking to thought leaders and experts to learn more about how global citizens can navigate and achieve success all over the world. I'm your host, Michael Rincon, a former six-figure analytic consultant turned ESL instructor and career coach and the founder of Michael's Business English. Building an international career is hard work, so if you're looking for help, you're in the right place. This conference will now be recorded. Welcome back to the International Career Show. I'm your host, Michael Rincon. In today's episode, I actually introduce my father, Juan Rincon. Uh, the reason I want to bring him on the show, and I'll explain why in a minute, but let me tell you a little bit more about him. He is a senior program executive in the legal and regulatory mediations field in financial services. He's worked with senior and executive leaders in multiple Fortune 100s. Juan brings a distinguished track record of achievement in project and program management, PMO governments and oversight, legal regulatory risk management, change management, and process improvement. His career has been driven by care and dedication to his clients through strong passion and drive that builds and grows high-performance teams, develops strong leaders, and achieves long-term sustainable results. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dad. Thank you, Mike, for having me. I'm looking forward to a great conversation. All right. So could you tell could you tell our audience a little bit about yourself in terms of background, education, and experience? Sure. So I actually am uh, Colombian. Uh, I came to this country 50 years ago as a young child with my family. And um, we uh, learned from the beginning that anything is possible in the U.S. You just have to be ready, willing, and able to work hard. And that's something that I picked up from my father something that I've passed on in every job that I've ever had to the people that I've worked with. And then to you as and to your brother and sister as my children, I tried to pass that value on to you so that you would continue in the tradition. Uh, I started my professional career at uh, TIA-CREF, which is unknown to many people, but it's one of the world's largest private pension funds. And uh, I spent 24 years uh, working uh, at the firm in New York and then uh, later on in Charlotte. Uh, it's a great firm with an incredible history um, serving the higher education community. And um, it was probably the, the one experience that shaped who I was going to become later on. Okay. So you can see, like, the way my dad talks, he talks a little bit different than I talk. He's a lot more distinguished. I have learned a lot about career development from my dad. Uh, both directly, he's given me advice, and indirectly, seeing him in action, meeting him uh, during the lunch, meeting him his colleagues, and just seeing how he interacts, listening to him on the phone. So I've learned quite a bit about what it takes to have a successful career, thanks to him. So uh, Juan, can you tell us a bit more about how you ended up in program and project management? Sure. So many years ago, um, I was um, my tenth or eleventh year at TIA. And I had a, a boss who took notice that I seemed to have a real interest around problem solving. 
And uh, we spent some time talking through some of the challenges that she was having. And uh, her office was cluttered with files. And uh, in a weekend that we spent going through and reviewing and structuring her files, we were able to put a plan together that allowed her to get rid of hundreds of uh, customer files, prioritize them and put them in a way that she could uh, get rid of the, the workflow that was backlogged. And um, about a week or so later, her boss noticed that her um, workflow had been cleared and uh, they came to me about a month later and they asked me to start thinking about whether I wanted to do something similar as I was developing my career. I was in my early 20s and uh, it didn't take a whole lot of effort. It, come, it came naturally to me, if you will. Um, but that was the launch of my career into training, um, work management, process improvement, and eventually it led to project management. By the time I was in my early 30s, I was already working at a pretty high level in the organization. And uh, I had bosses that could see that I had a real knack for solving problems. And they were the ones who put me in a path uh, and provided the necessary orientation and support to allow me to begin moving my focus and attention into project and program management. Um, so I did that for TIF for a long time. And then when I moved into banking in the early 2000s, I realized that all of the experiences that I had built, that I had uh, experienced um, at uh, TIF were going to help me uh, continue to grow who I was just in a different space. I was moving away from financial services and a not-for-profit space, which was TIF, and moving into banking, which is a completely different business model, different business altogether. But yet I found that it was an easy transition to become a consultant uh, in the banking sector, doing the same thing. So something that stood out to me from that story, Dad, is that you came from what I think a lot of people would call a non-traditional background. Uh, so for example, before you were in project manager, you were into training. Um, you didn't really have the, you don't have a PMO, you don't need to go through the project management PMP certifications, yet you learned the skills you needed and you got the experiences you needed on the job because the people you worked for saw that you had the work ethic and know-how. So you talked about before how you helped your boss over the weekend increase your workflow. And the boss saw that and they're like, we want to give you more work like that. Can you talk a little bit more about like your education, how you developed a project acumen, project program acumen to develop that expertise? Sure. So in the course of my career, both in uh, while I was at TI Craft and later on in the banks, you have uh, the opportunity to take classes. And I took several classes in project and program management. Uh, all of them were... Um, beneficial in that they cemented many of the things that I had already experienced. Um, and they gave me practical uh, examples of how I might be able to adapt the work I was doing uh, to be effective and to achieve results, which is what project and program management is about. It's about achieving results. Um, one of the courses that I took was actually at MIT, which was 
as my responsibilities were growing and I was starting to get into more technical project management, um, one of my bosses sent me to uh, take a program at MIT on how to manage uh, technical professionals in a project uh, management setting. And that program actually is what gave me the foundation to become even more effective as a project manager. Uh, I've done, the bulk of my career has been business projects. Uh, I've only done technology related projects over the last five or six years. I did uh, one engagement at Bank of America was um, where I was responsible for managing uh, finance technology initiatives for all of Latin America. And uh, that exposed me to the executive level leadership uh, at Bank of America in Mexico, in Colombia, in Argentina, and Uruguay, Paraguay, and Brazil. And that in itself gave me a sense of what was similar about managing projects that were business versus uh, the type of project management that is technology related, but ultimately drives the business. So um, that experience alone has given me the tools and the knowledge and insight that I needed to become effective in the technology space uh, in financial services. So something you mentioned that stood out to me, I think it's really important to talk about is the, the importance of getting more education uh, even though you already have a job, like you continuing to go back, get more training, get more education. Why is that important to constantly seeking growth? It's primarily driven by a, a, a need, not even a desire. It's a need to remain relevant. And the only way that you can remain relevant today is by staying abreast of all of the changes that are taking place in the legal and regulatory landscape in financial services. Uh, I've had the good fortune of working for firms that uh, provide perfect opportunities for me to continue to hone my skills. I learn as much as I can with every engagement that I've led. And um, in order to be credible with the clients that I support, I have to immerse myself to, in the subject matter so that I understand the nuance of what problem we are trying to solve. This is very different from traditional break, fix, and enhance technology initiatives. There's a wealth of project managements in the Charlotte area, in New York, in the West Coast um, that have these skills. But what I've discovered is that in the legal and regulatory landscape, in order to be truly effective as a program executive solving significant problems for these banks, you have to be uh, well-versed in the issues that the bank is trying to address. The only way you can do that is by reading, getting in touch with people who play in this space, asking question after question that uh, leads to a more complete understanding. And then eventually uh, the hands-on experience with the projects that I've led have given me the additional insight that have uh, made me a more uh, effective and more productive leader. Uh, when I go into discussions, uh, it is usually with the senior and executive teams, and they have taken notice time and time again that the type of work that I do, the way that I do it, and the level of engagement and insight that I bring to these deliberations 
make me more effective from the onset and have helped me to stand out uh, when I'm having these conversations with the clients. So it's the only way to become credible is to immerse yourself in the subject matter to the point that you are viewed as an expert in the field. Okay, so I appreciate that. There's, there's something that you mentioned that kind of prompted me. One of the most important lessons I learned from you, um, you refer to it as staying relevant. You refer to it as um, be, being credible, having uh, the knowledge. The way I think of it is, the way I first heard it from you a few years ago was the importance of hitting the ground running when you land a job. So most people, when they get start a new job, they expect everything handed to them. They expect you just like, the boss will teach me. And what I learned from you and what has helped me with my career is like, you want to show up and you want to be able to provide value, as you say, right away. That's right. One of the areas where I have been told many times in the course of my career that makes me different is that I come into an engagement from a, an impact point of view and with an eye towards solving the problems that the firm is experiencing. Almost every problem is tied to some cost component. And so early on when I was developing my management consulting practice, um, I had executives who coached me on how to value the work I was doing, how to establish what the right, uh, what the appropriate rate of uh, pay should be. And one measure that I have used consistently throughout the last 18 years now is in order to hit the floor running, you have to come prepared to have an impact from day one. Aside from the training that you might get or any onboarding that you may or may not get with your uh, client, you still have to do a lot of your own self-preparation. That's the first thing. The second thing is when you talk about potential value proposition that you're going to bring in, I was taught, taught at an early age to use the 20 times value formula. And simply what that means is that wherever I go, my value proposition has to be at least a 20 times return on the investment. So, I'm either going to produce 20 times my cost in revenue enhancement, revenue generation, or I'm going to reduce expenses by 20 times of my pay. And I have used that model throughout my career. And I've been able to not only meet that threshold, but I have exceeded it several times. And again, those are the, the facts that allow companies that I talk with to make the decision quickly to uh, to recruit me or to bring my firm in so that we can have that the two components hit the floor running and know from the beginning that they know they're going to see value uh, sooner rather than later. That has never been an issue for me. And uh, it's what allowed me for the last 17 years to have pretty significant engagements with pretty large firms. And uh, I've never had a situation where a firm did not see the value and did not want to um, try to retain me on a permanent basis. So it's it speaks for itself. I'm, I'm quite happy and proud of the achievements that I've had using that approach. Yeah, I remember the 20X uh, value, like when you started coaching me and helping me with my resume and helping me with my job search, uh, you helped me. With, I remember one particular situation was like, I was trying to figure out how do I show that I've done some process improvement with my experience. I don't have 
um, I didn't work directly with budgets. I was working as an operations associate, I was working as an analyst, and you helped me understand the value that I I, I gave to a company, even though it wasn't directly uh, making money or saving money, like obviously. So the example that I, comes to mind was when I did a, how I reduced process time. So I had a process we had to do at work was reconciliation. And what I did, uh, thanks for your framework and training, was I took that process and reduced the process time by 30% by making it easier for us to do. And I also put that on a resume saying that I reduced process time by 30%. This is not made up, it's something that we we actually sat down together and you helped me walk through it to like, this is how you determine how how you actually, what you actually did, right? Not just like I added value, but like, Michael, this is the work you did. How many hours did you save by doing this? How many hours did you save your teammates by doing this? How much do you get paid per hour? And you know, this is how we came up with that. We saved 30%. Um, and this also applies to 20%. Like, can you give us a, uh, some examples of how you have, or maybe some of your people you worked with, how they have found ways to 20X their value. Almost every problem that a financial services firm faces has a cost component, either through lost productivity, um, unnecessary work, repetitive work steps that are non-value added, or more specifically in my field with um fines so in my space to the extent that you can solve a problem that's specifically tied to a fine and you can show that the way that you've addressed the problem addresses process improvement needs you could actually quantify the additional savings to the firm in that you're going to be reducing the probability of future fines uh, so it's it's an easy model to follow. You can price uh, solving a particular problem based on how much effort is being put in by the firm to try and complete the process. But if that process also produces potential external fines, uh, you can add that uh, to your overall cost savings. So I've I've done it enough times to know that whenever I'm trying to solve a problem for a bank. Uh, whether it's a business problem or a technology problem, you want to solve that problem with long-term um, point of view so that you're not just looking at what you need to do to solve the immediate problem, but you're putting in the necessary processes and controls to assure that it doesn't resurface in the future. And then you have to train the people that you work with to make sure that they understand the, the, the purpose of the process and where the fail-safes are that they need to pay attention to so that the process doesn't degrade over time. That's an end-to-end -end approach to the way that I do my programs. It works. Right, so Dad, you've been working for a long time, working for Fortune 100s. What major insights have you learned in regards to your career development? So I know we covered the hit the ground running, the 20X rule. Is there anything that you think that you could add to that we may have not have covered that might be important? Sure. So for me, it's it's um, the value proposition that you bring about hitting the floor running has a lot to do with resilience. It has a lot to do with becoming relevant early on, but it also requires a lot of self-awareness. And being self-aware means you have to understand where you have strengths and where you have weaknesses. And you immediately begin to fill the blanks with any weaknesses that you have with any engagement that you 
take on with an eye towards being relevant from the beginning. The faster you begin to show that you understand the problem that you're trying to address, the easier it is for the company to trust you to expose more. And in a way, they, they will give you more problems to solve. And I've, I've had that experience many times in my career. All right. So I definitely want to cover that a little bit because one thing you, I remember, one of the first exercises you gave me was a book called Train Finders 2.0. And I won't go into a lot of details just for the sake of time, but highly recommend it. I'll put that in the show notes. But basically what I learned from this was the importance of identifying your strengths and weaknesses and utilizing that, taking advantage of that. And again, as you said, talking about that in the workplace, taking advantage, you can be relevant. Right. So there's no benefit to us as individuals if we know what our weaknesses are, if we don't do anything to try and resolve them. So strengths are strengths. You're good at it because either God gave you a talent or you have mastered a skill over time. But it's not intuitively apparent for people when they are made aware of weaknesses to try and address them. I everything I've done in my career has been to try and uh, make my strengths stronger and to reduce the impact of any of the weaknesses that I have. The way I do it is by constantly learning, by constantly reading, by talking with people, by not being afraid to get feedback. So that when you ask the feedback, it's a data point. And what you want to do with that data point is process it and figure out where it fits. And then you make a decision about how you're going to address the feedback. Either you require some steps that you got to take, or you take it and you put it in your back pocket for later use. My experience is that people who grow faster tend to want to address their weaknesses head on much quicker than people who don't progress as fast. I appreciate that. Yeah, I think there's a lot of talk on LinkedIn about should you ignore your strengths? Should you, sorry, should you ignore your weaknesses? Should you focus on your strengths? And I, I like the perspective that you bring, which is um, don't ignore your weaknesses, like acknowledge them and find ways to close the gaps, as you've said. So let me ask you this. What do you think about personal brand? Because I, I have seen that over and over and over. And I'm wondering, what are your thoughts about personal branding? Is that something people should think about at all? Sure. It's uh, something that I learned from my dad. Um, there are things that uh, cannot be um, overemphasized integrity, the ability to speak truth to power, the ability to uh, act with honesty. Those are things that make or break a person's career. And for me, it was always about once I know who I am, I'm going to try and focus on doing the work that emphasizes who I am. Many people make decisions about their career based on what their skills are. And I can't tell you how many times I have seen people with really good skills at a particular task or activity fail because it doesn't fulfill them. It doesn't make them happy. Um, I can tell you story after story about frustrated attorneys, frustrated engineers, frustrated accountants who might have been good with numbers and with spreadsheets but that's not what motivated them. That's not what provided happiness. And for me, um, I focus on pursuing jobs that allow me to do who I am, 
the way I am, I want to do work, pursue opportunities that are a reflection of who I am as an individual. And simply because I happen to be very good at execution, at planning and organizing, structuring and launching projects, that doesn't mean that I would take just any project. I have to align myself and my values with the values of the project and the values of the company that I'm supporting. Otherwise, I won't do it. And that is something that is not always apparent to younger people. Uh, they believe that they have to pursue opportunities based on their skills. And I think that that's just one dimension of what they should be considering in looking at their career. Yeah, I appreciate it. That's a very good insight about who I am versus skills. And I remember in the book, Keith Ferraz's book, Never Eat Alone, he talks about, so he was a consultant, I think one of the big fours. And one thing that he mentioned was that his eyes would glaze over and he got pulled over one day. He's like, no, Keith, I don't think this job's for you. And it's, it's, it's tough because like he learned, he got good at the skills, but you said something that was really insightful, which is that if it's not fulfilling, you won't enjoy it. And if you don't enjoy it, it won't put your effort into it. This also reminds me of another book that I read recently called Trying to Perform. And it talks about six types of motivations. They're probably the most important of all the motivational types. If you don't enjoy it, you won't go all in. You can't get into flow. So those are just stuff to think about. Uh, the importance of do you enjoy it versus what your skills are. Correct. Outliers is uh, a great example of a teaching coaching that emphasizes repeatability as a way of excelling. So the more projects you do, the better you're going to get at it. If you need to improve your public speaking, the more public speaking opportunities you seek, the better you're going to get at it. If um, you're the type of individual that thrives on white space that where you're supposed to identify the core problems, not the stated problems, but the core problems, and you have an opportunity to carve out, define the problem statement, define how you might want to attack solving the problem, structuring the actual project team, you have to enjoy doing it that way and you will be excellent at it. There are plenty of people that I've worked with in my career that looked at program and project management as a cookbook approach. And you go in with a cookbook and you, as long as you follow the recipe, it should result in successful outcomes. I can't tell you how many times I've been called in by companies to try and unclog a problem that was caused by people who were checklist followers, people who were more comfortable using uh, a problem that had been defined by a client instead of validating that the problem was in fact the actual problem and not a symptom. Um, for me, the more definition I can provide, the more explore, exploration I can complete, the more fulfilled I will be on the job. And I can tell you there's an absolute correlation between fulfillment, effectiveness, impact, and compensation. I have seen a straight line between those components for me. On the other hand, I've seen people who don't make those connections, not only never uh, achieve a level of fulfillment, personal, emotional, intellectual, but they never achieve the kind of professional success and fulfillment that they were seeking. So for me, it's if I pursue all of those uh, components, I'm gonna be happier and I'm gonna be far more successful than if I don't.
there's something else you mentioned early on that it just occurred to me might be really important to cover. So you talked about right right back in the beginning that you helped your boss um, clear up some work, which let me ask you first, and then let me ask you something else. Uh, was that something you were asked to do? Is something you volunteered for? And also, um, what I've also noticed about you is like you've noticed that it seems like your relationships with your bosses seems to be a pivotal role in your career. Like they've noticed the work you do and they give you more work and they you have made other comments about how important that is. Can you talk a little more about what, again, like how important, I guess for lack of better words, relationship with the bosses, how important is that for one's career? It's crucial to always have an open and honest dialogue with your superiors. I'm a management consultant. So there is always a distinction to be made between who butters my bread versus when you work in in an organizational construct, there's always a certain hierarchy that you walk into. And you have to learn how to manage the communications flow between you as the management consultant and the person that hired you versus all of the individual positions of authority within an organization that feel that they have skin in the game on your personal success or not. So I have had direct reporting relationships with chief risk officers several times. Um, I've also had relationships where I was brought into the firm by one individual and then my day-to-day reporting relationship changed to somebody else. I've never considered those individuals my bosses because by and large, they don't have the line of sight, the context, the orientation or the expertise to understand the kinds of issues that I'm trying to address. And that uh, fact has proven to be very helpful for me time and time again, going back to when I was 30, 31 years old, and I was drafted in to a role by a senior executive at TIA-CREF that eventually brought me down the path of management consulting. Um, I learned that early on, that there's a difference between the person who sees your value, understands your capabilities and your skills, and the person in an organizational construct that might want to consider themselves your superior, when in fact, that hardly ever happens in real life. Um, My relationships are sacred with the senior executives who hired me, they understand the value proposition, they know what my capabilities are, and they allow me to execute my projects based on those skills. And anything beyond that is just, I think you're looking for trouble. You might get limited. So I wanna add to that, something I've learned, it's one of the mistakes I've made in my career is I have not um, taken a good job of managing those relationships and there have been consequences to that. So for example, a few years ago, I had I was in a company and I had applied for an internal position that I was a shoe in for, and I sh- I had already gotten good recommendations from my boss. My boss sent me a text saying, "I want to reward you. I want to make your team lead." Um, however, because I didn't do a good job, I had did the opposite of what my dad did. He had he had built relationships. I had not built relationships. Um, the consequences were I did not get that promotion. And what and this is a longer story for another day, but. Um, I've seen this happen over and over again in my career. One of the challenges I've had with glass ceiling has been when I failed to manage relationships, not just with my boss, which I had a good relationship with them, but relationships with other stakeholders in my career. So I, I want to point that out, like the importance of the understanding of the matrix organization, the importance of 
managing not just your direct supervisor, but anyone who is a stakeholder in your career? So matrix is an interesting concept because matrix requires that you establish, maintain, and grow very, very good relationships up and down the organization. And it's not really about positional authority. It is about information flow. It's about making sure that people who need to be aware are aware. And if there is a particular aspect of a job or a decision that requires multiple approvals, learning and knowing how to navigate a matrix environment is going to be a key to success. That's that's when you are politically savvy and you understand that decisions are, are not made by one individual, but by several, and that sometimes decisions require information. And the more information you provide, the more solid and the more durable that decision could be. Um, matrix is also important because uh, in the world that I live in, uh, you have, in effect, a bit of a caste system. You have employees, you have contractors, um, that in, in financial services, it, it is quite common to have um, contractors that are from global firms. So in every firm that I've worked at, I've had to interact with India-based contractors, Canada-based contractors, Philippines, and even Costa Rica. Uh, not to mention at Bank of America, I had daily interaction with the finance teams in five or six different countries. And in some cases, those firms had external relationships with other firms in country. So the ability to understand that uh, being successful requires that you learn how to manage culture, culture shift, that is something that I see people struggling with today. They do not understand that when you're working with multiple cultures, the the people from India or from Canada or Costa Rica or um, Philippines, they all have lives. They all have aspirations. They all have families. They all want to be successful, but they also need to be respected. And that is something that I, at times, have had. Um, I end up having to spend a lot of time working with these firms to make sure that they understand that, from my point of view, their value, uh, value proposition is clear. Um, I operate with a certain level of uh, expectation that respect is paramount to every relationship. And I start and end my conversations with please and thank you. Um, and anything short of that will not work. You might be able to get some things done, but without full respect, you're going to struggle. And every firm that I've uh, that I've had to work with, there's a significant portion of uh, offshore resources, and for me, that is key to success. Treating those individuals with dignity and with respect 100% of the time. So you've had a lot of experience in managing teams throughout your career. Can you tell us what are some of the, the, the main things, the takeaways or highlights or ideas that you found that have allowed you to manage teams and allow them to achieve and exceed object, uh, object, I'm sorry, I'm losing my uh, objectives. So it's, it's all about clarity, right? So when we start 
a program or a project, I talk about hitting the floor running. Hitting the floor running requires that you have the ability to articulate a clear vision. What does success look like when it's all said and done? And then once you have agreement on the definition of success, then you start drawing out your plans for how you're going to get there. What are the skills you're going to need? What are the teams? What are the disciplines that you're going to need? And every step of the way, when you work with each team, you're making sure they understand the vision for success. And when every project team will have setbacks, every project team will have disappointments. My goal has always been whenever that has surfaced to fix it. You pick it up, you dust yourself off and you keep moving. You don't dwell on mistakes. You learn from your mistakes. Uh, and again, that's dealing with the individuals with respect. You have to have respect every step of the way. But being able to provide a clear vision for what their job is going to achieve, for what that individual's contribution is going to be and how it's going to help achieve the resolution of a problem or the implementation of a technology or a tool, then I think you see why it's so important to build teams, to sustain those teams, to keep them engaged. And it's through respect, clarity of vision, and rewards. Every team I've led, and I've had plenty of teams that were global in nature, multi-language, um, where success was always uh, inevitable. You knew you were going to achieve what you set out to do because the team was committed and they all understood what we were trying to do and the reasons why. I had a, a client about 10, nine years ago ask me why uh, he should hire me. And I, my answer was quite simple. I said, because I don't fail. Every project that I've ever undertaken has completed with better metrics than were anticipated, um, either at cost, sometimes at lower cost than had been originally budgeted. Um, and then again, this notion of sustainability after the project is done, making sure that you create a culture so that there's an increased awareness for how we got in trouble in the first place and making sure that you put the process in place to assure that that doesn't happen in the future. That's the way I've done it. Let me ask you this. How do you get these teams, because all these project management teams, they already have a job. And with what I'm understanding from project managers like you is that when they're pulled into a project, they have to do their day job on top of your projects. So even though you share the clear vision, how do you get them motivated? How do you get them committed to doing good work for the project when they have their main job they have to do as well? So that's a, a real challenge across the board, both on the business and technical sides. But it's the same formula, Mike. You want to make sure that they understand what role they're playing. You make sure that the, they and their bosses understand the significance of the role, the job they're going to do. And you gain commitment from the leadership team, from their leadership team, that they will have the bandwidth to contribute to the project deliverables as expected. Because when you don't address that from the beginning, you end up with frustrated team members who feel overworked and underappreciated. And unless you fix that from the beginning, uh, you're going to end up having to deal with setbacks, uh, deliverables that get stuck or 
worse, you start dealing with quality issues. So I work with the team members and with their managers from the beginning to make sure that there's the necessary buy-in so that there are no questions about how much time they're going to be making available. And that way we work on the delivery, whatever the delivery is, the quality, making sure that it conforms to expectation. And if there's a problem or a blocker that needs to be addressed to allow the person to be more effective, I will tackle that with the project team member and with their boss. It's a formula that works. The worst thing that a project team can experience is these kinds of issues that don't get addressed. They get swept under the rug. They're not talked about. They're not escalated. And uh, that's, that's how you end up getting in trouble. Project overruns, project deliverables that don't meet the intended objectives, or even worse, you solve the wrong problem. Okay, so given your, the experience you've had, how often do senior leaders in your client firms approach you for advice? Uh, it happens. It happens from time to time. Uh, every person has a different approach to addressing, dealing with, and even providing. Um, in my life, I've had several senior leaders approach me. And sometimes they approach me directly for advice. Sometimes they describe the problem and we work on it together because I want to make sure that the way that the problem is being framed and understood by the executive um, is not shrouded in uh, maybe they don't have all the facts. Maybe they're too close to the problem and they suffer from a bit of myopia but they're not able to understand the extent of the problem themselves. And so what I do is I try and, and put myself in their, um, in their uh, position, understand as best as I can the point of view, look for possible areas where they may be dealing with either uh, insufficient information or incorrect assumptions. And then I talk about alternatives. I don't actually ever go out and provide advice to executives especially if they ask, because executives are executives for a reason. And they have a point of view, they have context, they have information, and they form opinions. I don't have any of that at the time they come to me. So I rather spend my time um, gathering information and making sure before I provide any advice to an executive that I'm being thoughtful and that I'm being thorough and gathering the information, conducting an analysis. And most of the time I, provi I provide alternatives, not one recommendation, but a set of alternative approaches for the executive to consider. I found that to be a far more effective approach. So what's interesting to me is your approach is different from traditional career coaching, where typically a career coach, like you ask for like, how do I do this? And career coach gives you an answer. And what, what I've understood from you is it's not you it's not about giving them the answer it's more about helping them derive the answer themselves is yeah. that what i'm understanding that's exactly right so dad thank you so much for being a guest on the show what final thoughts do you have to help motivate our listeners to begin to take their career to the next level today well i was very fortunate i built good solid long-lasting relationships with few, very few mentors. But I would say seek out mentors. Make sure that you're uh, 
understanding the difference between a mentor and a coach so that you know what to expect and then take personal ownership for your own personal and professional growth. I didn't have, when I was growing up, I didn't have the ability to rely on people. Uh, it was, I think, by circumstance and in some cases by accident where a few people were, when I was in my early to mid twenties, saw that I was different and offered me the opportunity to take on different tasks that led to different opportunities. But never once was I stale. Never once did I say thanks, but no thanks. I took every opportunity that was given to me and I ran with it. And that included learning as much as I could every step of the way. And that's something that I continue to do today as I talked about at the start of our chat. Right. Constant learning, continuous learning is the only way to get things done today. Again, thank you so much for being a guest on my show, Dad. How can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more about you, work with you in the future, et cetera? So my LinkedIn profile is uh, there. I'm I'm one of several Juan C. Rincons, but I am the only one in Charlotte. Uh, so feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions, comments, or if you want to talk about any aspect of the topics that we covered today with uh, with Michael. Thanks, Michael. Thank you, Juan. Thank you, my dad. Thank you, Dad. Uh, this is the uh, it's a happy Father's Day special, so you know this is a little awkward for me. So I apologize. It's kind of bumpy, everyone. Uh, and we'll make sure all the resources you mentioned, including my dad's profiles, in the show notes, so that you can reach out if you have any further questions. Thank you. So thank you guys so much for listening, and happy Father's Day out there for all you fathers out there. Thank you for the work you do. We appreciate it. You know, I, I love my dad so much. He's done so much for me. I love my grandfather. Uh, bless his soul. He passed away, but he we have learned so much from both my dad and my grandfather, the values they've shared. Hope you guys have a good day. Take it easy today. Thank you. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to the International Career Show. For all the show notes and resources listed for this episode, head over to michaelsbusinessenglish.com forward slash podcast. If you like this episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you liked so we can continue improving the show. If you'd like to interact with me and other fans of the show, join our private community. Check the show notes for details on how to get in. Thanks for listening. Until next time, this is your host, Michael Rincon, signing off.